This morning we're going to be looking at the triumphant entry as it is recorded in John's Gospel. It's one of the few events of Jesus' ministry that's recorded in all four Gospel accounts. It's John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1671. We've been preaching in the Gospel of John for some time. Um, and we haven't got up to this point yet, but I figured we could do a little bouncing around for the sake of uh, this, uh, this week's events, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, so we may be doing a little bit of bouncing around in the Gospel of John, but we'll go back, pick up where we finished, where we left off, fill in the gaps, so to speak. Um, so let's read the passage this morning, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 18. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. With thus far the reading of God's word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. It might be helpful to get a bit of context since we've jumped forward in the Gospel of John. Uh, these events that are occurring here in this moment really revolve around Lazarus. Uh, the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11, which is going to be our chosen passage for Resurrection Sunday. And the, they lead up to his entry here in John, uh, Christ's entry here in John chapter 12. In John chapter 11, Christ goes and raises Lazarus from the dead and then the, the Jewish leaders begin to plot how to get rid of this man. Caiaphas, the high priest, said, Don't you know it's better for one man to die for the nation than for the entire nation to be destroyed? And John tells us that uh, he did not know that he was doing this, but as his office, he was speaking prophetically. And so they began to want to enact this plot to kill Christ because they saw political unrest on the rise as Christ's popularity rose. And then, moving up to chapter 12, Jesus is then invited to Bethany where uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus live, and he's given a feast, a, a meal in his honor. And at this meal, Mary anoints Jesus' feet with this perfume. And of course, that's the moment in which the uh, betrayer, Judas Iscariot, says, this is really expensive perfume. Why couldn't we sell it and make money? But the only reason he said that is because he was the one who was in control of the money bags. 
and he would often steal from it. And Jesus says, she has anointed me for my burial. And so many people gathered around Jesus at this feast that was done in his name that the Jewish leaders said, hey, we not only need to kill Jesus, we need to kill the living proof of his miraculous power. we got to get rid of Lazarus. Because if Lazarus is gone, nobody will know that he was, well, maybe they'll just forget that he was once dead and then raised again. And that leads us to the events of the triumphal entry. And a lot of people have discussed, what exactly does this moment mean? Like I said, it's important. It's, it's talked about in every one of the gospel accounts. And some people um, don't realize that this open display of Christ walking and then eventually riding a donkey into the city with all these people cheering, it's a, it's a stark contrast from Christ's previous practice of anonymity and the hiddenness. The demons would speak and he would shush them. Don't reveal my true identity. We want to make you king. He would sneak off. Jesus' brothers would come to him and say, go down to the feast. Go down to this and reveal yourself as the Messiah. And he would say, no, I'm not going to do it that way. And then he came down later, but in secret. So why this public declaration of his identity? Some have offered the answer that it's one last opportunity to give the people of Israel a chance to place faith in him as the Messiah. One more display, an opportunity of them to see him as king. But this was not to garner public approval. Instead, this is showing Christ's transition His march toward the cross. All those many times before, he says, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. He is declaring in this moment that his time has come. He is signing his death warrant by inciting the crowd and goading the Jewish leaders into acting on their wicked plans. Plans that have been developing since the resurrection of Lazarus. The declaration of Caiaphas, the high priest, that it's better for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation perish. Christ is showing in this glorious entry that his kingdom is unlike earthly kingdoms because it is a kingdom that is accomplished through his death. Christ the king triumphs through his death. That's what we see here in this passage. Well, there's three parts to this passage. The first is the reception that he receives from the crowds. The second is the expression of the character of Christ's reign as he's seated on the donkey and fulfilling prophecy. And the third is the responses to this that John accounts for us. So let's look first at the reception. When I was living um, in Rensselaer, uh, one of the years that we were there, the uh, small high school in Rensselaer won the state championship football game for their division. This is a town of a city of 6,000 people. And so for this little city of 6,000 people to have a state championship football team was a pretty big deal. And so they came back home from Indianapolis And they were greeted with a parade down the main street of Rensselaer. And everyone in Rensselaer came out to greet the Rensselaer Bombers. I always thought that was a weird name, but I don't know what the story is behind it. This football team was praised. Had this great reception for their 
glorious victory. And that's a bit of what we see here. We're told it's the next day. This is following Christ's presence in Bethany where he's honored with a dinner. Mary anointed him with perfume, pointing forth to his impending death and burial. The next day, the great crowd had come for the feast. What is this feast? It's the Passover. We're told this um, later on when we see that the disciples gather for the Passover meal. And this is significant because of the feast that required a gathering at Jerusalem in the temple. This was the most somber. Hearkening back to the blood of the lamb placed on the doors of the Israelites in Egypt so they could escape the judgment of God. This feast is in the background of Christ's Passion Week because this feast was always intended to be fulfilled in Christ. Who is the true Passover lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. And then we're told about these palm branches. They took palm branches. Uh, John's account is actually the only account that mentions palm branches specifically. And it's, of course, why we call this Palm Sunday. And some people are confused by this part of the passage because it's the Feast of Tabernacles that had a prominent place for palm branches because the people of God would gather in Jerusalem and they would make these little tents and they would gather palm branches and they would make these coverings with palm branches. But rather, in Jesus' time, if we take a moment to look at history, the palm branch had become a symbol of Jewish nationalism, Jewish identity as a people. Therefore, they speak to the peoples, these palm branches speak to the people's expectations concerning Christ. Why is it that they're waving these palm branches at Christ? Because they were anticipating an imminent national liberation. They expected Christ to enter into Jerusalem and to lead them in an insurrection against Rome and finally establish Jerusalem, Israel, the nation, as they should be as God's chosen people. And then we hear these statements that these people are giving. Hosanna is from Psalm 118, which was our psalm for the call to worship this morning. Psalm 118, verse 25, Hosanna. It can be translated as, give salvation now. Give salvation now. It's a halal psalm used in connection with the Passover. And this statement, give salvation now, Hosanna. In light of the palm branches as nationalistic symbols, shows us that what these people are asking for is not salvation of an eternal character, but salvation of a temporal character. Save us now from our political enemies. Save us now from these great, horrible tax rates. Maybe some of us in Illinois feel the same way. Save us from Rome. Give salvation now, of a political kind, a revolt kind. And here they read, continuing in Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This psalm was often sung during the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. So as everyone was gathering to go to the Passover, they would sing this song on their way. And then in this sense, the meaning was a blessing, a simple blessing on the pilgrim heading up to the temple for the feast. 
But the crowd is interpreting Psalm 118 messianically. Therefore, they deduce that the blessing is upon the Messiah himself. In other words, rather than blessing in the name of the Lord on the one who comes, they are saying blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing on the Messiah, for the Messiah is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then that last phrase, blessed is the king of Israel, we may think that that continues quotations from Psalm 118, but actually it's not. What it tells us is that um, they are interpreting Psalm 118 messianically. They wanted him to be king. They are seeing Psalm 118 as a kingly psalm, messianic psalm about Christ's identity, Christ's place as ruler of the nation. Similar to what was said following his feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. They said, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. See there again, he withdrew. But in this moment, he's not. But what about this reign? What is Christ's kingly character like? How does he reign as king? Maybe some of you, I don't know if you have ever thought of why the story of King Arthur is so compelling. It's one that's told over and over again, generation the generation I grew up watching that animated film, The Sword in the Stone, still a good one. But the whole premise of King Arthur is such a compelling story because it's an unlikely, poor, and seemingly weak little boy who is revealed to be the true king. Because it is a spin on our expectations. We think a king is someone who looks powerful. A king is someone who has presence. A king is someone who can go to battle. This is part of the reason why Christ as king is so compelling to us. Because King Arthur really is just stealing from the greatest story ever told. You see, the people greeting Christ on the way into Jerusalem wanted a political king. Christ is going to show them that he is a king unlike any other. That his reign is not to be characterized by war and conquest. His reign is to be characterized by peace and humility. And he expresses this to the crowd without even opening his mouth to speak. How does he do it? He sits on a young donkey. It's an acted parable and a fulfillment of prophecy. What's what's being shown here is that Christ, in response to their desire to see him be a political king who would go against Rome for them, he grabs for himself not a war horse, but a donkey. Humility marks this king. Peace marks. Marks this kingdom. And then John says, as it is written, and he quotes from Zechariah, 
9, verse 9. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Do not be afraid is actually not found in Zechariah 9.9. It replaces the phrase, rejoice greatly. But what we need to understand is that it's not uncommon for New Testament writers to combine two or more passages of the Old Testament. The phrase, rejoice greatly, is most likely derived from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, where they are addressed to the one who brings good news to Zion. So John pulls these things together because this is a, a statement to the daughter of Zion. But we should also not see the reference of Zechariah 9.9 as disconnected from its context. For whenever a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament passage, they are doing so contextually. And what does the broader context of Zechariah 9.9 says? Well, 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10 says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. That's verses 9 through 11. So what does this messianic passage from the Old Testament show us? What is it that it shows us that Christ is meaning to communicate to his audience because he's riding on this donkey? It shows us three things that are to be associated with the kingdom of Christ, this gentle and humble king. First, this king brings the end of war. Look, it says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. No more fighting. This king brings a proclamation of peace to the nations. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There is a gospel, a good news that goes out. That there no longer needs to be a fight for the, the death penalty that came upon Christ is the final. And then lastly, this king brings the blood of God's covenant Christ's blood, which is the blood of the new covenant, which results in the release of prisoners. And tell me this isn't the kingdom of Christ. But the question is, how will he bring these things? How does he bring these things to fruition? With humility. You see, there's no greater expression of humility than that the Son of God would take on himself a true body and a reasonable soul so that he may die a criminal's death upon the cross. This king's kingdom is purchased by an instrument of death. Yet in a shocking and surprising twist, it's not a sword. It's a Roman cross. Therefore, Christ's declaration is the triumph 
Triumph, victory comes through death. His declaration is that his humiliation is his exaltation. This shepherd king undermines Israel's earthly expectations. You see, maybe some thought after witnessing his trial and death shortly after that this triumphant entry was the peak of Jesus of Nazareth's short career. But the irony is that his death on the cross, the cross on which Pontius Pilate had written the king of the Jews, is what actually secures the true triumph. Not of Rome. Not of burdensome taxes. The true triumph over sin, Satan, and the grave. His victory comes through defeat so that he may become the resurrected and ascended king who has been given a kingdom and dominion which shall never pass away. A king who will come again to judge the living and the dead. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says the reason by which Christ has a name, the name of which everyone will bow, is because he is the crucified one. And that really brings before us a question, doesn't it? Who is Jesus to us? Is he the Jesus that can give us all our dreams and desires so far as he doesn't give us himself? Is he the Jesus that can fix all my life's problems so I can get back to doing what I want to do? Is he a Jesus that's a lucky charm which we rub only when we want something to go well for us? Or is he the true word revealed to us in Scripture? A humble and mighty king who calls us to the reality that just as, this, just as if it is true, because it is true, that his humiliation is his exaltation, that he is a humble and gentle king, we should not find it surprising that he calls us to pick up our crosses and follow him. We should not find it surprising that he would say that we must die to ourselves and live to him. We must not find it surprising that he says, no greater love does a man have for him, his friends, than he would lay his life down for them. That's the Christian life. Gentleness, humility. That we would know that the true way of exaltation is humiliation. The true way to be lifted high by our Heavenly Father is that we would be humbled. And what a warning this is to us as Christians and as churches that we would strive to make our spiritual agenda 
be the one that God has actually spoken concerning Christ and his kingdom. That we would not build our own kingdom thinking we are building the kingdom of Christ. What about the response? It's in light of this that John records for us three separate responses to Christ's triumphant entry. The first is the response of the disciples found in verse 16. John informs us similarly to how he did in chapter 2, verse 22, when he said, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said about the temple. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. That in this moment, the disciples did not entirely comprehend the magnitude of this event when they experienced it. But when the promised Holy Spirit came that Jesus promised in John chapter 14, saying that he would teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you, the realization of the character of Christ's true kingdom and his fulfillment of the prophecies that are written here became in focus to them. In the same way they came to realize the importance of Christ's ministry, may we strive to prioritize God's kingdom above all, Uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be given to you, right? Not wanting to one day realize that much of what the world thinks is important is insignificant and temporal and we've placed a higher value upon those things than on the kingdom of God. Therefore, we should desire to simply serve the Lord in keeping with His word in reliance upon His grace. For there's going to be this wonderful moment in heaven where we may have the blessing of learning how God used something we said or an encouraging word we gave to make a difference in their lives. And the value you've placed on things will be flipped. Where quiet and solitary prayers given in a room are going to be seen as the great and wonderful things they are rather than the achievements of Nobel Peace Prize winners. May we live for the kingdom and one day see that God has used us for great things. Then there's a response of the people. John's wanting to make a connection between Christ's rising popularity and his growing attention with that of the raising of Lazarus. A miracle which was so undeniable that the Jews were incited against Christ to begin plotting And one that had been so effective in gaining followers of Christ that the religious leaders were even trying to figure out how to kill Lazarus. Those who saw this miracle in Bethany were now informing all the pilgrims who had made their way to Jerusalem for the feast. Hey, hey, did you hear about this man, Jesus? He raised this man from the grave. He was in there four days dead, wrapped in grave clothes, and he just got up and walked out. It was insane. And so the word is spreading like wildfire. And these people do serve as models for all who bear witness to the truth, yet with a cautioning word to their one big error. They saw in Jesus a power that they hoped to harness to their own purposes, a power they hoped would be focused towards their liberation from political bondage. They desired to receive the blessings of Christ without embracing the true purpose of his saving grace. 
And may we come to Christ to worship and adore Him. Not because we want something from Him, but because we want Him. You see, when they were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel, they were saying those things for their own benefit, not because Christ was deserving of them. When we say, Hosanna, we should be saying, save us now from our sins and from the consequences of them, save us from our guilt. When we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we are saying, Jesus is the blessed one because he is the Savior who died on the cross for our sins. And when we say, blessed is the King of Israel, we say, Christ is King because he has been humiliated and because he has been risen to to be seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We do so because of Christ, who he truly is, because we receive him, not because we receive something from him. This is another sign of Christ's increasing willingness to come out from his hiddenness. He is preparing himself for the most public sign of his entire ministry, that of the crucifixion. And lastly, we see the response to the Pharisees in verse 19. Now this is what they say. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. On the surface, this statement could be taken simply as an expression of deep hatred and frustration from the enemies of Christ. They're expressing their jealousy over their influence and power, being lost to this zealot. The Pharisees see political instability on the rise, in the rise of Christ's popularity. And they're concerned that it may be getting close to the point of no return. Where the people would revolt if they were to kill their favorite miracle worker. So they're going to need to act quickly. But on another level, there could be a great expression of irony here. Placed here by John, the author of this gospel. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Well, it's the word cosmos, and it refers broadly in John's writings to people everywhere without racial distinction. Therefore, placing these words in the mouths of the Pharisees may be John's way of wanting his readers to view this crowd here at the triumphal entry as an anticipation of the future image John sees in heaven. Where we read in Revelation chapter 7, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and what were they holding? Palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. See, the Pharisees meant it simply as an expression. We do this all the time. Wow. It's like the whole world loves him. But because of John's prior use, and because, in fact, John 12 continues right into 
where we see Gentiles, Greeks, seeking Christ in the temple, where Christ says the words, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men without racial distinction, all men to myself, we should not be surprised that this is intentional. But there's something else that needs to be said here at this point. Because here we are 2,000 years after Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem where he begins his march toward his death. And it's something you may have heard before. When Christ came to Jerusalem, he was riding on a donkey. But when he comes again to judge the living and the dead, he rides a white horse. A war horse. He comes bringing the wrath of Almighty God. He will come for those He saved, and He will come to judge those who have not obeyed the gospel. He comes to put an end to all sin and death for once and for all, and then and only then will there be peace forevermore. So may we stay alert. May we understand the importance of each and every day. Take every opportunity we have to be those who share the gospel news. To express the proclamation of peace. That Christ has come and in His death There is forgiveness. There is hope. You can find that your sins are wiped away. You can come to the cross and be washed. You can believe. You can have faith. That there is still time to make Christ your king. And yet all God's people say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, may we be ready. May he find us faithful. May he find us standing in his grace. And come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Lord, we ask that you would bless these words to our heart, to our minds, and to our hands, that we may live for you this week, proclaiming, the coming of the King who died so that we may also proclaim that the King who died, who shall never die again, who lives forever shall come again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.